I'm Ruth McGregor, and I knew Justice O'Connor first as the wife of one of the partners at the law firm where I worked. John O'Connor was a partner at Fenimore Craig. And then when she was appointed to the Supreme Court, she invited me to come along and work as her law clerk during her first year. So I took leave from the firm and went to Washington during her first term and served as a law clerk. After that, she and I worked together on a lot of projects involving judicial independence and the rule of law, merit selection. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court, was laid to rest this week. As the country said its final farewells to the Arizona ranch girl, we here on The Gaggle have been honoring her life and legacy through a series of interviews with those who knew her. Welcome to the third episode of The Gaggle's mini-series on Sandra Day O'Connor. I'm producer Kaylee Monahan. Thus far, we have heard from O'Connor's biographer and a historian. Today, we turn to someone who was closer to the justice, Ruth McGregor. As a former chief justice on the Arizona Supreme Court, McGregor shared that she's known O'Connor since the mid-1970s. At first, they worked solely as associates in the same field. But a friendship blossomed that lasted a lifetime. McGregor sat down in the Gaggle Studios in April 2022. Former Gaggle host Yvonne Widget Sanchez led the interview. Take us back to the first time you met her. How did that moment unfold and what were your impressions? Well, the first time I remember actually meeting her was at a firm weekend. The law firm had, you know, went away for a weekend every fall and they had all of the associates, which I was then, and our spouses. And we went usually to a dude ranch someplace. I was very nervous and I think my husband was too, although he wouldn't admit it because this was really the first time we were meeting socially a lot of the people in the firm. And at dinner, they had us all seated at tables and each table had at least one of the more senior partners there. Cal Udall was with us. And all of a sudden, toward the end of the meal, either a wine cork or a dinner roll plopped into the middle of the table. And we looked around, and it was then Judge O'Connor trying to get our attention. And so she was throwing dinner rolls at our table. <laughs> so that's my first clear memory of her. We, of course, we couldn't appear before her when she was a state judge because of John's presence in the firm. So until the Supreme Court, my interaction with her was always social, not professional. Take us through what the period was like when you were one of her clerks during that historic first term. That first term really was amazing. Everything she did was a first. You know, the first time she went out on the bench, it was the first time a woman sat there. The first time she asked a question, the first time she published an opinion, the first time she gave a speech as a Supreme Court justice, no woman had ever done any of that before. So everything about it we knew was, in a sense, making history. The other thing that really stood out on that term was how many people wanted to see her 
and talk with her, make contact with her. The Supreme Court, for the most part, the justices don't get a lot of mail from people. And then, of course, it was all mail, no email. But when she started, we were getting about 500 letters a week. And that was several months in when we started counting. We had no idea. And they would come down with these big carts full, you know, like library carts, just full of correspondence to Justice O'Connor. And uh, people really felt as if they knew her. I thought it was maybe because for the first time the hearings had been televised. But people reacted to her, I think, because she was a woman. So they would invite her to their grandchildren's wedding. They, somebody sent a hand-knitted pair of mittens in case it got cold in Washington. Somebody sent some homemade fudge. Some people sent more expensive gifts, which we had to return because she wasn't allowed to accept them. But the letters we got from people, you could just tell they thought of her as someone they knew. And then, of course, everyone from Arizona thought that they should have time with Justice O'Connor. So if they came to Washington, they might go see their congressman, and then they would come and see Justice O'Connor. So we had to learn to kind of filter some of that out, because on the phone, people would tell the clerical staff that they were a long, old friend of Justice O'Connor. They knew she would want to see them. But it was a very busy chambers, especially as compared with what had happened before at the Supreme Court. How was she received by the other justices? Well, from what we could see, very well. Some of them were just naturally more outgoing and open than others. Justice Powell was just every bit the Southern gentleman and was very good to her. Uh, We learned much later when Justice Blackmun's papers became available that he was not at all excited about having Justice O'Connor on the court. And he didn't like the way she was treated and the attention she got. But that wasn't apparent at the time. The justices didn't then, and I think still don't, spend a lot of time together. It's not like in your office where you might go next door and just talk about what you did over the weekend or something. There wasn't much of that at the Supreme Court. You talk a lot about how there were so many firsts with her as the first female justice. Did she discuss her status as the first woman with you or others on the staff? Or was it something she sought to try to avoid? Was it just sort of noise playing in the background? How would you characterize that? I think it was more than noise playing in the background. I think she was always very aware of her position as the first woman. She didn't talk about it a lot, but you've probably read that. She often said, it's great to be first, but you don't want to be last. And that was very much her attitude. She was keenly aware that everything she did was being measured and evaluated and looked at, not only because she was the first woman, but she was from this little state out west that nobody knew anything about, from the Arizona Court of Appeals. She wasn't somebody who had been on a lot of the lists of the eastern elites. Um, So she was really watched very carefully. And I think there's no question she was aware of that. I'm sure being a clerk to a Supreme Court justice is as great of an honor as it Uh, sounds, (laughs) you got to be part of one of the more historic justices in the court's history. What has that meant to you personally? And how has, have your thoughts about that sort of changed over time? Well, it had a great impact on me professionally. At the time that I went back to be your law clerk, I was a partner in my law firm. I was doing trial and appellate work. 
really loved my practice and had never thought about leaving to be a judge. But being there that year and seeing the work that the justices did really made me start thinking that that might be something I wanted to do down the line. And eventually I did. So it really impacted what I saw as possibly my future in the law. Being there, just observing her, taught me a lot that I tried to apply later in working with people and how you treat people you work with. She was always so respectful of everyone and always had time for people. It was astounding given the amount of pressure on her and how busy she was. But when somebody you know, came to visit from one of the trial courts in Arizona, whom she may not have known well, she always had time. She would always ask about their families, what they were doing. And she had this way of looking very directly at people. So when she was talking to you, as far as she was concerned, you were the only person. She wasn't paying attention to around. In Washington, they're always looking over the shoulder to see if somebody more important is behind you. But she didn't do that with anyone. And I think it's a really good lesson to learn in how to work with people to show them that you appreciate their efforts. Looking back, I was talking with one of my fellow law clerks the other day, and I said, you know, I've, I'm just really kind of surprised that we were so dense. The four of us all knew we were in the middle of a historic event. But did any of us keep a journal? No. Did any of us even take very many pictures? No. Of course, we didn't have phones to take them with, but we all had cameras. But when people ask for pictures of that first term, we only have a very few. I, I guess we were busy. I guess that's our excuse. But the fact that we didn't go home at night and write things down in our journal just is kind of astounding to me looking back. If I could do it over again, I would do that. I hope that Justice Jackson's clerks take note of that and do that as they say are there. <laughs> what would you have written down from those early years? Well, I think, you know, every day we had we saw new things happen with her. New people come and talk with her, famous authors, political figures, other judges, women lawyers, law students. And just to have made notes of who she saw and what she said to them and what was important to them, what kinds of questions they were asking, I think would be really interesting to look back to. Now I just have my memory of things that kind of stand out. But it was really uh, we, we should have done a better job of chronicling what was happening. You remained close with Justice O'Connor after your tenure as her clerk. Tell us about your friendship and what she meant to you personally. She filled a lot of roles with me. She was clearly a mentor, but she also really became my friend. Our views about the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary and the value of merit selection were very much in tune. And she, of course, was able to have a much greater impact than any of the rest of us. But seeing how much time she gave to those subjects that she cared about in addition to civic education really helped me focus on some areas that I thought were important. She's a really good friend to be around. I mean, not only do you get to go to the front of the line everywhere, <laughs> but she is such a warm person. And she is truly interested in everything that's going on in your life. She also has, a lot of people don't have a chance to hear it. She has a really great laugh. And when some, something really tickled her, I mean, she would just laugh. 
both John O'Connor and my husband just tell terrible jokes. I mean, <laughs> and she was a wonderful audience for both of them because she just got so, she got such a kick out of the stories that they would tell. And she's, you know, that, that caring part of her, that warmth, which necessarily isn't so evident for, in her professional life, but her willingness to take time. A few years after I had clerked, I, my younger sister was back doing a fellowship at NIH. And so my four siblings and I and our spouses and her mother were going out to Washington over Easter weekend to see my sister. And it's a good time to be in Washington. So I called Justice O'Connor just to ask. We wanted to go to Easter services at the National Cathedral. And I said, do we need tickets or something for this? You know, can somebody direct me how we go about this? So immediately she took charge of it. And when we got to the cathedral, we had tickets in the second row right behind the justice. And then she invited us all to her home for brunch after services. I mean, there were 11 of us. But that's very typical of what she does. If you are her friend, you know, she will do anything she can to make you comfortable, to make you enjoy yourself. So we had a lot of, of adventures together that were related to professional things often, but always had time for personal. You've had a chance, obviously, to absorb her work in full now, looking back. Pretty momentous. We're seeing some of that work being revisited what do you make of her career on the court, especially as someone who saw its sort of uncertain beginning? As you know, during her time on the court, she became known as the deciding justice on many cases because the court would tend to be split four four, and which way she went determined the outcome. She hated the term swing justice because it sounded to her as if it was something she just went from one side to the other without any thought. She didn't mind being the deciding vote, but she didn't want it to be thought of as something that she did without care. She was, of course, aware of her position as the deciding justice on those cases. I think that she has been distressed to see some changes she did talk publicly about her distress when the court handed down its decision in Citizens United, which overruled an earlier decision of hers. And I think she thought that the court, never having been in the political arena, did not understand the impact of unfettered corporate contributions to political parties and candidates. I think she was right from what we've seen since the Citizens United decision and I think she probably saw more clearly than most of us what the impact would be. She hasn't talked very often about other decisions. She has suggested that perhaps the court should have avoided taking jurisdiction in Gore versus Bush because it should have been left perhaps to the state courts. She felt then that it was important for the court to decide things and have a, a final decision. <laughs> Little did she know how long these decisions could go on in the future. But she was concerned to see, I think, the, the rightward movement of the court because she really tried to be apolitical as a justice and clearly did not think her political views should determine how she would rule as a member of the court. 
And she was very successful in that, I think. It was one of the reasons people found it hard to predict how she would rule. For instance, when the court handed down the Casey decision, which basically upheld Roe versus Wade, people had thought she would rule to overturn or somehow limit Roe versus Wade. And in that case, as in others, her viewpoint was based upon precedent, the rule of law, laws that people had relied upon for a good long time. So she was unpredictable, but only because people thought they could predict her by her political affiliation. To a lot of people, Justice O'Connor came across as a hard, scrabble pragmatist who could tackle any problem. Presumably, that goes back to her upbringing on the Lazy Bee Ranch. But she made comments that indicated a surprising measure of self-doubt, something that a lot of women in particular face. She said she didn't want to flop as the first woman on the court. Did you see that side of her? Actually, when I read her indecision initially about whether she should accept the nominations, I was surprised. She did not display any of that indecision during her first term on the court, at least to those of us who were the law clerks, and I don't think to anyone on the court. She was always willing to listen to the views of others, but she made her decisions, and she seemed to be, and I believe she was, very comfortable with them. I think when when she was first offered the nomination, she did have some moments of doubt because she didn't want to fail as the first woman. But once she decided she could do it, I think she just went full steam ahead. She had a really good ability to evaluate situations, whether they were opinions pending before the court or other kinds of situations, and bring to bear everything she knew about the situation, then make a decision. And she always said, you'd make a decision and then you move ahead. You don't look back. You don't second guess yourself. And people would ask her, how can you do this? You know, these are such important opinions and so forth. And she would explain, you know, you do the very best you can the first time you do something, and then you move on to the next because you can't go back and change it. But that does require being very careful when you make the decision in the first place. That's why she didn't like the swing vote thing. What do you think is Justice O'Connor's place in American history? Well, as everybody says, her tombstone will always either read or people will see it as being the first woman on the United States Supreme Court. That's a place in history that obviously no one else can have. It will go beyond that because it will go to what she showed as the first woman on the Supreme Court. She was right that if she had done a poor job, if she somehow had not been acceptable as a member of the court, it would have set women back. I think all of us who went through the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s know this, that if the first person to do something doesn't do a good job, if they're a member of a minority group or if it's a gender, it really takes a long time to overcome that. So I think that her position, not just as the first woman, but the first woman who proved that a woman was completely capable of doing a very difficult job. It's kind of amazing it took that long for us to figure that out. But that impact, and also the impact she had on young women, lawyers, judges, but also just young women in general, who saw new opportunities they hadn't seen before, who were able to say, I can be the next justice on the Supreme Court. I just have to work hard. I have to study hard. 
but it's, it's a position that's open to me. So I think that very broad impact on the opportunities for women and just the attitude women had about themselves and what they could do. She changed that. You see some parallels today with Katanji Brown-Jackson. Absolutely. I think Justice Jackson is in very much the same position because people will be watching her very closely. They'll be seeing whether she can handle the job. And young women, and particularly young women of color, will be watching her and they will feel this, this sense that it is possible. I can do this, or I can become president, or I can be, you know, whatever I want to be. Because once somebody accomplishes that, it really opens up your thinking. And so that you're no longer limited in anticipating what you can do. Everything becomes open to you. I think that Justice Jackson will have very much the same impact. Can you give us an example of something that you learned about her that you think most Americans don't know but should? I think most Americans don't have a full measure of her dedication to family and friends. Even as a member of the Supreme Court, she was the one who took chicken soup or some kind of baked goods to a colleague or a spouse or a friend who was not feeling well. She was the one that family members would call for advice. And she always, always found time. For her, the, the notion of balancing work and family wasn't so hard, I think, because she knew that the balance always tipped toward family, that you always found time first for family and friends. Now, she was capable enough that she had plenty of time left over for her job also, and to play golf, and to play tennis, and to go on trips, and to give speeches. But if there was a conflict there, it was always clear who would win. It was always family. She, Of course, she, could, she had a lot of ability to work things out so that both things could get done. But I think maybe people don't appreciate that. They see her as the justice, the person handing down decisions, which she clearly was. But behind that, there was this whole very warm, very involved person with her family and friends. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, you know, one thing that I always think about at looking back is I think we have to make sure to give John O'Connor credit also. Remember that they graduated from law school in the early 50s. And for not just her, her, her appointment to the, the Supreme Court, but before that, in, in the various things that she did in her career, he was always there supporting her. And when she had her moment of doubt about the nomination to the Supreme Court, it was John O'Connor saying, of course you can do this. And he did believe, he believed she could do anything, and she could. So he had to give up a very well-established practice and leadership in the community and the legal community. And I don't think he ever had a moment's doubt about whether he was willing to do that to support her or not. And I think anyone, male or female, going to a very difficult job knows how important it is to have the support of your significant other. And she had that, and she knew she had it. And so he was so important also to her being able to relax into her position. So I always, I always think we should give John O'Connor some credit along the way. That was Ruth McGregor, 
former Chief Justice of the Arizona Supreme Court, and law clerk and friend to Sandra Day O'Connor. This interview was originally recorded in April of 2022. Tomorrow... She was bright. She was inquisitive. She had early conversational skills. She had problem solving. She was just born with it. She always was just the head of the class. We'll hear from O'Connor's younger brother, Alan Day, who shares what it was like to grow up with her. The episode will be released tomorrow afternoon, right here on The Gaggle. Today's interview was led by former Gaggle host Yvonne Winget Sanchez. The conversation and episode was edited and produced by me, Kaylee Monahan. Additional audio assistance is by Amanda Luberto. News direction is provided by Kathy Tulamello. Our music comes from Universal Music Production. Never miss an episode of The Gaggle by subscribing to us wherever you listen. And if you learned something new today, be sure to share this episode with a friend. You can also review and rate us five stars. Follow The Gaggle on social media at AZC Podcasts. Thank you again for listening to this special series on Sandra Day O'Connor. We'll see you tomorrow for the final interview. Thank you.